Okay. Joshua. Joshua. Jesus Christ, captain of our salvation. So, the meaning of the name Joshua, back in Numbers 13 16, we were told that, and Moses renamed Hosea, son of Nun, Joshua. This was back just before uh, Moses sent the 12 spies into the land. He renamed him Joshua. Hosea means salvation, but Moses wanted a name that talked about the source of that salvation. So he changed his name to Joshua, meaning Yahweh saves. The Hebrew is Yehoshua. We say Joshua, but the Hebrew is Yehoshua. Okay, let's take a look at the flight, the facts, the landmarks, the itinerary, the gospel, the history, and the travel tips. So Joshua, an eyewitness, wrote the first 23 chapters. Phinehas, the son of the priest Eleazar, may have written chapter 24, Joshua's final speech and death. The first 23 chapters were written between 1406 and 1376 B.C., And that last number, that 1376, is just an estimate uh, because we aren't told how old Joshua was when Israel came into the Promised Land. We're told that he he died at the age of 110, but we don't know how old he was when he came into the land. So he he may have died earlier in, in 1380 B.C. or 1385 B.C., but that's around the time. The last chapter was written sometime after Joshua's death. God used Joshua in an uncommon way to oversee an uncommon work, bringing Israel into the land, conquering the land, and distributing the land. The itinerary, the the outline for the book, the first five chapters are a preparation for entry into the Promised Land. Chapters 6 through 12 are entry into the Promised Land, and chapters 13 through 21 are allocating the promised land. And then the last few chapters, 22 through 24, are holding on to the promised land. The gospel, while the most obvious gospel connection of the book, is the name Joshua, equivalent of the the name Yeshua. But the parallels go deeper. What Israel couldn't qualify for under the law of Moses, God gave them as a free gift picture of the grace that we receive. The history, well, it's the first book of the Bible that specifically highlights the history of Israel in their own land. It marks the transition from the books of the law to the books of history. And some of the travel tips, whatever God starts, he finishes. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he kept those promises. And he will also keep his promises to us. We're told that in in Hebrews, that God is the author and finisher of our faith. Another lesson of the book is that conviction requires response. If if you believe, you should do something about that belief in response. And then we need to learn to trust God on a day-to-day basis, even if the ultimate 
promise that we hold dear is off in the distance always, we still have to learn to trust him day by day. So here's a timeline of some of the events in the book of Joshua. So just to orient ourselves, we have the, over on the left there, we have the exodus from Egypt. And there's, you'll say two dates there. Once again, this is that whole controversy about whether early date or late date. And I explained to you in Exodus that I prefer the, the early date, the 1446 B.C. So in 1406 B.C., Joshua dies and Israel enters the Promised Land. And then about 1401 B.C., Joshua distributes the land. And then over there on the right, you'll see a mention of the Merneptah Stella. That's in Egypt. And it's a an inscription on a stone that mentions Israel. It, it's dated to about 1209 B.C. So we know from that that there was a nation called Israel in the land by that time. And this is just one more reason why I favor the, the early date for the Exodus, because I don't think there would have been enough time for Israel to be established as a nation uh, by 1209 B.C. if they didn't come out until 1270 B.C., Here are some of the places that are significant in Joshua. Shittim is where the Israelites had their last camp before they came into the Promised Land. And their first camp in the Promised Land was Gilgal, on the west side of the Jordan River. And that was their, their base of operations during the whole conquest. North of there, well, right, right near Gilgal, you see Jericho, because Gilgal was near Jericho. Uh, to the north of Gilgal, you see Shiloh, and that's where the tabernacle was placed and remained for a long time. To the north of that, you see Shechem. And there are two mentions of Shechem in this book of Joshua. Early in the book, Joshua assembles Israel at Shechem, and this is the famous incident where he places half the tribes on Mount Ebal and half the tribes on Mount Gerizim. And uh, he, he sets before them the blessings and cursings. And then he returns to Shechem late in the book to give his farewell address. Um, these other places like, like uh, Bethshan and Bethel and Gezer and Lachish and Hebron, those are, those are cities that, that Israel conquered during the conquest that, that they defeated. And Hebron, by the way, is the place where Caleb received his inheritance. Let's take a look at, at the preparation of Joshua to be the leader of Israel. Joshua led the victorious battle against the Amalekites. This was back in Exodus. Joshua accompanied Moses to the mountain of God. He didn't ascend clear to the, clear to the top of, of the mountain with, uh, with Moses, but he did ascend further up the mountain than the other elders. Joshua was the attendant of Moses from his youth. Joshua, along with Caleb, spied out the land of Canaan, along with ten others. Only Joshua and Caleb urged the nation to possess the land. Joshua was indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We read that in Numbers. Joshua was commissioned for spiritual service the first time to assist Moses. Joshua fully followed the Lord. We're 
we read that in Numbers. Joshua was commissioned a second time to replace Moses. And Joshua was, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. So Joshua was well prepared for this role. Moses had an understudy. He had a, a, a person that he was training to be his successor after he died. One of the mistakes that, that Joshua made is that he did not have an understudy. He didn't have someone he, that he was training to be his successor when he departed from the scene. Thank you. So that, that was uh, something that, that, Moses, that Joshua didn't do, and we'll see the tragic consequences of that when we look at the book of uh, Judges. I see that sometimes in, in ministries, sometimes a godly man will, will start a ministry and, and the ministry becomes prominent and influential, but he doesn't train anybody to succeed him. So after he dies, then you know, one of his sons or someone else uh, takes over the ministry and they just don't manage it the way he did because he didn't train anybody. So it is important to train people after us. You know, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy that, that he should choose elders, that he should prepare men to follow him. Paul didn't want his ministry to end after he departed from the scene, and he didn't want it to end after Timothy either. He wanted it to go on and on. So each generation of believers needs to, to train the following generation. When Israel came into the Promised Land, they had a, a three-pronged attack. They had a, a central campaign, a southern campaign, and a northern campaign. But I'm getting ahead of myself. I want to talk about coming into the Promised Land, and then I'll talk about the city of Jericho. So this is the route of the spies before Israel came into the Promised Land. They were still at Shittim, or Abel Shittim, the uh, Acacia Grove, and the spies crossed over the Jordan and, and spied out Jericho. Now, the river wasn't parted for the spies, so they either had to swim across or else build a raft, one of the two, to get across the river. Now, this, this map shows the spies leaving Shatim, going to Jericho, and coming back. But I don't think this map is quite accurate. I think this, this map is a better picture because remember that the spies, when they left Jericho, they couldn't come immediately back to Shatim. They had to go to the hills and hide out for a while until the, until the uh, search wore down and quit, and then they could come back to Shatim. Now, Rahab was the harlot that in Jericho that the spies contacted. And they made an agreement with, with Rahab. And even though this agreement was put together rather quickly, it still follows the pattern. It has all, all of the elements of a treaty or a covenant back in the ancient world. So first... There was a preamble. For the Lord your God is, and then it goes on to describe what God has done. And in a prologue, we have heard. She tells about what the, the inhabitants of Jericho have heard about Israel and the God of Israel. 
and then it has stipulations. Rahab says, swear to me. And then the, the spies respond by saying, you shall. It has sanctions, which provide salvation for Rahab's family if they keep the oath. It has an oath. And then it has a sign, the scarlet cord hung in her window. So this agreement, uh, even though it's a rather informal agreement, it still has all of these elements of a, of a covenant. Now here's a, here's a map of, kind of a 3D map of, of where Israel crossed the Jordan from Shittim to um, Gilgal, which is close to, to, to Jericho. Uh, probably only, we don't know exactly where Gilgal was. Archaeologists haven't discovered that yet. But uh, it, it probably was quite close to Jericho because remember, the Israelites went to Jericho every day for seven days. So you wouldn't want to be too far away or you'd be all tuckered out by the time you got there. So it was fairly close to Jericho. And the other thing I want to point out is upstream a ways, you see a white dot on the river where it says Adam. So that's where the water stopped. So when the, when the waters of the river stopped, there was no water visible at the time that the Israelites crossed the Jordan. So sometimes I wish artists would pay a little more attention to the biblical details because they show the water parting right in front of the priest. And then the priests stayed in the river while uh, the Israelites passed by them. But of course, there were, was no water visible, as you see in this picture, but then the artist has to, has to use some artistic license, so, because otherwise you wouldn't know that they were crossing a river. <laughs> so uh, this shows the, the stones. They, they took 12 stones out of the river and built a monument on the, on the west side. And then apparently they also built a monument of 12 stones in the riverbed. So once again, here's the course that they followed, crossing the river and setting up camp at Gilgal. And it's not far from Jericho, even though we don't know for sure yet where Gilgal was. And then Joshua meets up with a mysterious individual. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. Even though this particular passage doesn't use the expression, the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh, I do think that this individual was Malach Yahweh, because you will notice that it says, with his drawn sword in his hand. There are only two other places where we find an individual doing this. One is in Numbers when the angel of the Lord, Malach Yahweh, appeared to, to Balaam. The, then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. When the Old Testament talks about an angel, that's just an ordinary angel. But when it talks about 
the angel of the Lord. That's a theophany. That's an appearance of the pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. He's a man. He's an angel. He's God. The other example of where where the where this individual appears with a sword, a drawn sword in his hand, is in the time of David. This is when David made the mistake of, of numbering Israel. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord, Malachi Yahweh, standing between earth and heaven. And in his hand, a drawn sword stretched out over Jerusalem. So once again, we see that the angel of the Lord with a drawn sword. So you might wonder, well, if this is the commander of the Lord's army, where's the army? Well, in... In Joshua, we don't see the army. We see the commander without the army. In 2 Kings 6.17, we see the army without the commander. This is the incident where Elisha is surrounded, the prophet Elisha is surrounded by enemies, and his servant is getting worried. So he prays that God will open the eyes of his servant, and when the servant's eyes are open, he sees that he's protected by an army with fiery horses and chariots. So in 2 Kings, we see the army without the commander. In Revelation 19, when Christ returns, we see the commander with the army. Now, a word about the walls of Jericho. The city of Jericho had a really ingenious defensive system. First, they had a revetment wall or a retaining wall made of stone. And then on top of that, there was a mud brick wall. And then there was a rampart, a slope from this mud brick wall up to another mud brick wall. So there was a double wall. And people would build houses in this space between the two walls. And that would have been where where the home of Rahab was located in this space between the wall. Her house would have been built right up against that lower wall. This is an overview of looking down at the city of Jericho. And it shows you where some of the uh, 20th century archaeologists have excavated. Uh, The first was was Selen and uh, Watzinger, the Germans. You see them at at the... those names at the top of the picture. They did the first excavation in the early 1900s. In the 1930s, uh, a British archaeologist named Garstang excavated at Jericho. And then one of his students, Kathleen Kenyon, uh, excavated Jericho in the 1950s. So you, you see a, a a spring in, in Jericho. So, so the people of Jericho thought they were all set. They had defenses, they had a spring, they had lots of food. They thought they were pretty much impregnable. Now, now here's a, a colored picture of the, the walls as they're beginning to crumble. And here's a, here's a side view of, of what the defensive system was like. So 
At the bottom, you see that, that revetment wall, that retaining wall made of stone. Then on top of that, the mud brick wall, then the, the rampart, the slope, going up to the second mud brick wall. Now, in this picture, the, the rampart is covered with grass, but that was not the case at Jericho. They had plastered the slope, so it was slick. So even if an attacker made it over the first wall, he's trying desperately to climb up this slope, this slick slope, while the people above are raining down arrows and stones and boiling oil and whatever else on their heads. But of course, Israel didn't have to contend with any of that. Here's the panic of the inhabitants of, of Jericho as, as the walls come tumbling down. And next, I would like you to listen to a brief video clip. It's about five minutes long, but it's about the archaeology of Jericho, and I think you'll find this very interesting. Let's see if I can get this to work here. And the desperate panic of the people of Jericho. Day after day for six days, the people of Israel are walking around their city with the Ark of the Covenant and the sounding of ram's horns. Then on the seventh day, they encircle the city seven times and the priests give a long blast on their horns. The people let loose with a mighty shout. The walls come tumbling down. allowing the Israelites to climb up into the city, taking it and commencing the conquering of the land of Israel. Well, when the city met its end, uh, these mud brick walls collapsed and they actually uh, fell down to the base of the stone retaining wall. Kenyon describes it very uh, clearly and in detail in her excavation report and then we're told they set the city on fire. And that's exactly what we find. Jericho was massively destroyed by fire. Kenyon said it was very clear that within the city, the walls of the buildings had fallen as well. And she says that the walls fell before the fire. And so we have the sequence that we read in the Bible. First, the fallen walls, and then the city being set on fire by the Israelites. Excavations at the site uncovered clear evidence for a massive destruction by fire with a very thick burn layer of extremely high temperatures. This caused Kenyon to attribute the burning to an enemy attack and not fires that would result solely from an earthquake. She claimed that the city was destroyed uh, around 1550 B.C. by the Egyptians. Well, there's absolutely no evidence that the Egyptians were ever in the Jordan Valley at this time period. So because Kenyon dated the destruction of Jericho 150 years before the Israelites were supposed to be there, she made no connection between the destruction and the biblical account. But once again, this date fits the earlier pattern I've been seeing. Within the city... A very unique discovery was made. 
both Garstang and Kenyon found in the houses that they excavated many jars full of grain that were stored there. The store jars in the city were pretty full. That suggests the harvest had only recently been gathered in. And the details in the biblical account point to an event that happened sometime in the spring. And down there in the Jordan Valley, spring is when the harvest is gathered in, the grain harvest. When the Israelites crossed the Jordan, the first thing they did was celebrate Passover. Well, when is Passover? Again, the spring of the year. The full jars also indicate that if this was a siege, it was very short, unusual for a strong fortified city such as Jericho. And that matches the biblical account because the siege was only seven days. Otherwise, the people inside would have consumed a lot of that grain if it dragged out for months. Was the grain found all over the city? Yes. In every house that was excavated, they found jars of grain. There's one other intriguing detail at Jericho that fits the Bible remarkably well. It had to do with a promise made to Rahab. She actually lived in the city wall. And after hiding the spies, they promised her that she and her family would be protected when they attacked the city. And they kept their promise. She had marked her home with a scarlet cord, which she hung out the window. But if her house was built into the city wall, how could it have survived? I came across the actual archaeological report that the German excavator of Jericho, Ernst Sellen, had published in 1913. He was the first to conduct a major excavation of the site, and I could see that his work was impressive but now seemed to have been forgotten. Here were detailed plans and photographs, including one part of the site, which echoed the Rahab story in an unexpected way. The Germans found that in this one short stretch on the north side of the city, there were houses built on the rampart between the lower city wall and the upper city wall, and some of those houses were built right up against the lower city wall. They found that the city wall did not fall in this area. So that provides an explanation for how the spies could have saved Rahab and her family because God brought the wall down everywhere else except where her house was, and we have archaeological evidence to back that up. Boy. So um, some other interesting things about Rahab or Rahab. Some people try to claim that Rahab wasn't really a harlot. She was an innkeeper. Well, in the ancient world, if a single woman was an innkeeper, she was sleeping with her customers. But... So it's, it's very well established that she, that she was indeed a harlot. Uh, but she was the call girl who became a called girl. Uh, the Bible doesn't say anything disparaging about her. And Matthew tells us that she was in the genealogy of Christ. She makes the uh, Hebrews chapter 11 hall of faith. And James speaks about her as an example of a person who 
combines faith and works. Uh, Jewish tradition also um, speaks very positively of Rahab. It is said that she was the ancestress of eight prophets, including the prophet Jeremiah and his contemporary, the prophetess Huldah. And the, um, the, the Jewish tradition also speaks her as, a, as one of four women of great beauty in the world. The other three are Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and Abigail, the wife of David and Esther. So, next we go to Ai from Jericho. And you probably remember what happened at Ai regarding Achan. Uh, the name Achan sounds like the word, the Hebrew word for trouble. And we've got trouble right here in River City. Um, Achan took things that he shouldn't have taken from Jericho, and that's why Israel was first defeated at Ai and suffered some casualties. Achan had taken things that were, that were haram. They were under the ban. What is the ban? Well, things that are haram are things that are set apart, that are devoted to God. And when we think of someone or something devoted to God, we, we usually think of that in a positive sense, and it can be used that way. Something set apart, someone or something set apart for special use. But it can also be understood in a negative sense, something that's set apart for complete destruction. That, that may be a concept that's a little bit difficult for us to understand in the modern world. But if you think about it, whether people are blessed or cursed, they still redound to the glory of God, right? I mean, what, whether you're blessed or cursed, it, it establishes the glory of God. So that's the, the concept of haram. One of the, the reasons that I think that the book talks about the experiences at Jericho right before the experiences at, at Ai is because of the contrast between the two main characters that we see in those incidents. We see Rahab connected with Jericho and we see Achan connected with Ai. One of the themes that runs through the Bible is the concept of reversal. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. So let's compare Rahab and Achan. So we see that Rahab was an outsider. She was not part of Israel. Achan was an insider. He was part of Israel. Rahab was female. Achan was male. And when we look at the relationship that they had to Yahweh, Rahab was fearful and faithful. Achan was fearless and faithless. He wasn't afraid to take things that didn't belong to him, that rightfully belonged to God. And the new status, Rahab becomes an insider, and Achan becomes an outsider. 
Achan had uh, taken a, a beautiful, expensive garment, and he'd also taken some gold and silver. And that kind of illustrates this concept of haram because the garment was to be destroyed. It was set aside to be destroyed. And the, the gold and the silver were to go into the tabernacle treasury. The next thing that happened after AI was finally successfully taken was that Joshua assembled the people of Israel at Shechem, about 20 20, 20 miles north of Ai. Shechem is located between Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. So here's another map showing you where Shechem is. It's within that little inset there, and we'll take a look at that later. This is Shechem as it is today. There's an Arab village called Nablus there. So we're looking at Shechem from the east. On the right is uh, Mount Ebal, and on the left is Mount Gerizim. Uh, some, Some interesting facts about Shechem. It's the first place that Abraham camped when he came into the Promised Land. Um, it's also where Joseph, Joseph's body was buried. Remember when, when the Israelites came up out of Egypt, they brought the bones of Joseph with them? That, that's where they buried them, at, at Shechem. In the New Testament, this is the place where Jesus met the Samaritan woman at the well. So here's that inset now. Of, there's Shechem, and, and there's Mount Ebal to the north and Mount Gerizim to the south. The, uh, the tribes to the north, the interesting thing about these tribes, north versus south, so if you're, if you're facing east, Gerizim is on your right, and Ebal is on your left. So that's why Gerizim represents the blessings and Ebal represents the curses. It's interesting which, which tribes are represented in these two groups because the tribes on Mount Gerizim to the south, they're all tribes that descended from Jacob's real wives, Rachel and Leah. The tribes on the north are the ones that descended from the two handmaidens. So uh, Mount Gerizim was the, represented the blessings and Mount Ebal represented the curses. Now I talked about this three-pronged attack. The cent- there was a central campaign and a southern campaign and a northern campaign. So the central campaign was, was very brief. That was when, when they took Jericho and then Ai. And then something happened with Gibeon. The the people of Gibeon, um, apparently they weren't born yesterday. They realized that there's no way that we can defeat these people from Israel militarily. So we're going to have to use some trickery here. So they pretended that they had come from far off because the 
people who lived in, within the land of Canaan, in the promised land, those people were to be wiped out. But the people of Gibeon pretended that they'd come from a long way off and they made a treaty with Israel. And, and it wasn't just the city of Gibeon. There, there were some other cities around Gibeon that were also part of this, this uh, city-state. Uh, those are the ones in the lower left there with, with circles. Kephara and Biroth and Kiriath-Jerim. So all of these people were protected because they were ob Israel was obligated to protect them. Well, what happened was the kings of the southern cities got wind of this and they decided to go up and punish Gibeon for making a deal with Israel and they attacked Gibeon. And then Israel was obligated by treaty to protect the Gibeonites. So they, the, the army of Israel marched all night to get to Gibeon to respond to this attack against Gibeon. And then they put the enemy to flight. And that's where the southern campaign begins. So Israel had to go down into the south of Israel there and wipe out all of those people, all of those kings, defeat them. That coalition of kings that had come up against Gibeon. There's another map of the southern campaign. And then the next thing that happened was that the northern kings, the kings of northern Israel, the northern promised land, they got together in a coalition against Israel. So Israel had to go up and fight them. So Israel went up along the Jordan River and along the Sea of Galilee and they caught up with these kings, this coalition that was coming against them at a place called Merom or the waters of Merom. There's a sort of a 3D map of what happened here. So there was a big battle at Merom where you see that little red oval there by the Sea of Galilee. And once Israel attacked them and caught them by surprise there at Merom, the waters of Merom, then they fled and then Israel pursued them. And here's another map of the, the kings that had an alliance against Israel running, running in various directions and Israel pursuing them. A significant thing happened at the waters of Merom this is the first place that Israel was confronted with an enemy armed with horses and chariots. And so how, how were they able to defeat an army with horses and chariots when they had neither? Well, once again, Israel was able to defeat militaries that were superior to them, superior in terms of technology, had greater technology, but by God's power, Israel was able to defeat them. 
And right after this, Israel went down south to deal with the Anakim. And these were the giants. These were the giants that, that uh, so terrified the ten spies when they came into the land. So by God's power, Israel was able to defeat armies that were technologically superior, and they were able to defeat armies that were bigger and stronger than they. In Joshua 10.24, Joshua says to the leaders of Israel, come here and put your feet on the necks of these kings. This is a a stone carving of of an Assyrian king placing his foot on the neck of an enemy that he has defeated. So in the ancient world, putting your your foot on the necks of your enemies was a a symbol of, of the complete submission and defeat of the captured king. So there's a map of all, all of the kings, all of the cities that, that the Israelites defeated. There were 31 kings in all that they defeated. Uh, does anybody have, have your Bible handy? Uh, turn to Joshua chapter 13. Can somebody read the, the first verse of that chapter? So even though Israel had defeated all of these kings, the problem was that they really hadn't possessed the land. They really hadn't occupied it. Because what would happen is they would go out from their base camp at Gilgal and they would defeat these armies and then they would come back to Gilgal. Well, as we saw in Vietnam, it doesn't do much good to go out and defeat the enemy if you pull back and let them move back in. Let them regroup and come back in. So there was a problem with Israel. They they were able, by God's power, to defeat these enemies, but they weren't real good at occupying the land. Some tribes were better than others. Um, Judah was was better at occupying the land. Uh, The tribes of of Ephraim and Manasseh, the descendants of Joseph, they were better. But there were still seven tribes left that Joshua had to kind of, okay, guys, you, know, you can beat these guys, you can do it, get out there and, and occupy the land. So they, they, they parcel out the land, they allotted tribal allotments to the people, and the allotments were, were determined by lot, so nobody could complain that they were treated fairly. But they were also given land based upon their population. So large tribes got more land and smaller tribes got less land. The tribe of Manasseh experienced the greatest population growth during the 40 years in the wilderness. So they got lots of land. They had some land on the west side of the Jordan and they also had some land on the east side of the Jordan. Simeon, on the other hand, experienced the greatest loss in population during the during the 40 years in the wilderness. So you can see them down in the south, and their allotment is within 
the, the allotment for the tribe of Judah. So you see Judah surrounding them, and, and Simeon is given their allotment within within the allotment for Judah. So there's another map of the, the tribal allotments. I don't know whether it's easier for you to see colored maps or black and white maps, so I give you a, a few of each. There's <laughs> a, a black and white map of, of the tribal allotments. And you can see Simeon more clearly there, down in the south, surrounded by Judah. And then there's this map. Um, one of the things I like about this map, it not only shows the tribal allotments, but it also shows the cities that were given to the Levites. And what I really like about it is that the cities given to the Levites are color-coded. So the green ones were given to Co- the Kohathites, the, the red ones to the Gershonites, and the blue ones to the Merarites. And you can see how they're, they're kind of grouped together. So the... Uh, uh, let's see, what, which group is this? The green ones, the, uh, the Kohathites, most of them are down here. Whereas the, uh, the Gershonites, most of them were up here. And then the, the Merarites, the blue ones, uh, most of them are over here, down on, on the east side, down in the southern part. Now, the Kohathites also included uh, the descendants of Aaron. So, so that's why it was important that they be here, because later on, when Jerusalem became the capital uh, and the temple was established in Jerusalem, then the priest lived in that area, the descendants of Aaron. One of the duties of the priests and the Levites was to teach God's Torah to Israel. So the the cities of the Levites were set up in such a way that no citizen of Israel was more than about 10 miles from the nearest Levite. So he could go there and receive training and instruction about God's Torah. Now, unfortunately, it doesn't seem that the Israelites availed themselves very well of that opportunity or that the Levites did a very good job of teaching them because for long periods of time, they weren't even familiar with the Torah of God. Now, one other thing that I I wanted to mention about Shiloh was that when we think of Israel, we we tend to think of Jerusalem being established as the, the worship center, the religious center of Israel right from the start, but that's not exactly true. Shiloh was, was the place where the tabernacle was set up at this time. And it was for more than 300 years. It wasn't, uh, the ark wasn't moved to Israel or to Jerusalem until the time of David. Some of those Levite cities were also cities of refuge. There were six of those. Three on the west side of the Jordan and three on the east side of the Jordan. And they were set up in such a way that, that 
No Israelite would be more than two days' journey away from one of the cities of refuge. A couple of things that happened during this time of allotting the land to the tribes. One was that Caleb received his inheritance. The other spy who brought back a good report along with Joshua. It's interesting that whenever Caleb and Joshua are mentioned together, Caleb is usually mentioned first. So poor Joshua, he not only had to stand in the shadow of Moses, but he actually had to stand in the shadow of Caleb. (laughs) Maybe part of the reason for that is that Caleb was of the tribe of Judah, the tribe that would eventually produce the Messiah, whereas Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim, one of the descendants of Joseph. So Caleb received his inheritance. Caleb's life was the victory of a preserved life. The Lord has kept me alive these 45 years, and here I am today, 85 years old. Caleb's life was the victory of a powerful life. I am still as strong today as I was on the day that Moses sent me. And Caleb's life was the victory of a prosperous life. Then Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb for an inheritance. Remember that Hebron um, is also one of the Levite cities. Down in the lower left there. So Levite cities weren't just inhabited by Levites and no one else. The Levites lived there, but but other people did as well. So Hebron was one of the Levite cities. It was also one of the cities of refuge. Now, here's the Shiloh that I was talking about. It's about 20 miles north of Jerusalem. And as I mentioned, when we think of Israel, we normally think of Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem's the, the religious center, the worship center of Israel. But for over 300 years... Shiloh was Israel's religious center. It's not till the time of David that Jerusalem becomes important as a religious center. Now, misunderstood motives. Um, I have I have all of this on the presentation, but I, but I maybe I'll just try to summarize it. So. Moses was concerned when Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh wanted their land, their allotments, on the east side of the Jordan River. Moses was very adamant that if you're going to do that, you can do that, but you need to go with your brothers to conquer the land on the west side of the Jordan River. And then once we've conquered the land, then you can go back home to your to your allotments on the east side of the river. And so after the enemies of Israel had been defeated, Joshua allowed the people of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh to go back to their homes. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan an altar of imposing size. And when the people of Israel heard of it, 
the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. They were very concerned about this. They assumed that the people of Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh were up to no good, that they were apostatizing, that they were rebelling against God, so they were actually going to make war with them. So they, they went to, to make war with them, but, but first, uh, and this is a good thing, they checked this out. They wanted to investigate it. They wanted to find out if this was really true, what, was, what they thought was happening. So then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord. So the people of Israel investigated this, they checked this out, they asked questions, and they found out that what they thought was happening wasn't really happening. It wasn't really happening the way they thought it was happening. And, and I bring this up because I think this is a good lesson for us as individuals to learn. Because so many times when people are doing something or saying something that we don't think is quite right, we immediately jump to conclusions and assume what their motives are. Well, I know why he did that. He did that because he's a nasty guy and he hates me and he's just trying to hurt me. I know why she said that. She said that because she's just jealous of me and my family and she wants to embarrass us. So we assume that people do things or say things without checking it out. And usually, instead of going to those people, what do we do? We gossip to our friends about this situation or we go to the minister rather than going to the person that we think has done, some, done something or said something offensive. So I think this is a lesson that, that Israel learned and it's an important lesson for us to learn as well. Now, Joshua gave his farewell address at Shechem. So once again, he assembled the people at Shechem. He left his home at Timnath Sarah, which is in the tribe of Ephraim. Joshua was of the tribe of Ephraim. And he assembled the leaders of Israel, representing all of Israel, to Shechem. So once again, this is a picture of Shechem, as it is today. And this is where Joshua spoke those famous words, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river and I mentioned before that that expression, the river, refers to the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So this choice that 
that Joshua is asking Israel to make is an independent choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Each individual has to decide who he will serve. It's also an intelligent choice. Think of all that God has done for us in our history. And remember that he is a holy, jealous God. So this is not an emotional choice. It's one that we think about. It's also an implemented choice. There's something that you have to do. Put away the gods your ancestors served. There's a response that you have to make in this choice. It is an influential choice. Joshua is not asking Israel to do something that he's not willing to do. He says, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And it is an immediate choice. Choose this day whom you will serve. Don't put this off. Decide right now. Make a choice right now. And then Joshua took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth, the oak, that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. Now, there is at Shechem a large stone, a large upright stone. Most archaeologists would date this stone as too late to have been Joshua's stone. But archaeologist David Roll does believe that this is the actual stone. It's about six feet tall. It's partly broken. The actual stone that was set up by Moses, or excuse me, by, by Joshua, the stone set up by Joshua. If that is so, then this stone still stands as a silent witness to the challenge that Joshua issued to Israel. Now, I want to finish, as I always do, with things that make you go, hmm. <laughs> so the, the thing that I want to cover to this evening about the, the things that make you go, hmm, is um, Joshua's long day. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, so, so this is when the Israelites have responded to the attack against Gibeon. And they chase the, the attackers away from Gibeon and they chase after them. And that's when this incident occurs. Oh, I should point out that there's some dispute as to who the he is in this verse. Did Joshua speak directly to the son and command it to stand still? Or did he cry out to God and say, we need some help here, we'd like to finish this task, and then God spoke to the son? Um, it's, not, it's not entirely clear there whether it's whether it's Joshua or God speaking to the sun. Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ion, 
and the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jasher? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven, and did not hurry to go to set for about a whole day. The book of Jasher is the, the book of, of the righteous. It's one of several books that are referred to in the Old Testament that fall into the category of lost literature. Uh, we don't have this literature today. Now, there is a book called the book of Jasher, but scholars doubt that this really is the book that is referred to here. Now, this is one of the most, if not the most, remarkable miracle in the Bible because most miracles just affect the people in the immediate vicinity of the miracle. But you would think that this is a miracle that affects the, whole, the entire planet, the entire earth. And so this is something that skeptics, so that scoffers will point to and say, come on, get real. Nothing like that could ever happen. It's unscientific. But um, a man named Donald Patton, he's a believer with, a, with an engineering background, he has actually proposed a, a mechanism by which this could happen, even, even from a scientific standpoint. He believes that in ancient times, the planet Mars had a much more elliptical orbit around the sun than it does today. And that there were two points where the orbit of Mars actually crossed the orbit of Earth. And when the two planets happened to be in close proximity when they crossed paths, it brought about some dramatic changes on, on both planets. Of course, there's nobody on Mars to even notice, but... <laughs> But on, but on Earth, it, it also produces dramatic consequences. Now, we know today that the sun doesn't really rise and set. That, that's just a perceptual thing. It, Earth actually rotates on its axis. And so one of, one of the problems that scoffers have is that, well... If the sun stood still, then the earth would have had to stop rotating, and that would cause the seas to slosh over in, this, in these huge tsunamis all over the earth. You know, it's just like when you're, when you're driving along and you slam on the brakes, whatever's in the seat goes tumbling off. The same idea. But I don't think that the earth actually stopped rotating on its axis. I think what happened is that it temporarily rotated on a different axis. So the, the sun appeared to stand still where, where Joshua was. It only rotated on that axis temporarily, and then it began once, the, once Mars was no longer close by, then it returned and started rotating again on its normal axis. And incidentally, uh, there are, are legends and and stories around the earth that talk about this. Um, there are legends in, in China, for example, that talk about a long night that occurred at about the same time. So 
I'm not necessarily saying that this is what happened, but I'm saying that for people to just reject this out of hand and say, ah, oh, this could never happen, there are possible answers to, to how this might have happened. So, that's our discussion for this evening. And in two weeks now, we'll be doing uh, the book of Judges, and we'll see the tragic consequences of the fact that Joshua didn't train anybody to succeed him. So the, the book of Joshua ends on a high note, with Israel remaining faithful to God during the lifetime of Joshua and all of the elders that outlived Joshua. But then uh, things take a turn for the worse, as we'll see in two weeks. noticed it was at the beginning I looked it up it was 2231 yeah okay I think you picked up 513 okay so anyway yeah I didn't. I'm putting those references in there very hurriedly so were you okay so, I, so, I don't usually look them up you know, yeah, 2231 so. and this one is also that one's correct oh that one's correct but this one yeah uh, so I'll, re I'll revise yeah. that and have yeah. resend to, to Gail just oh do you send do you send it to Gail mm -hmm. oh okay because I was sending it to you. <laughs> I was sending it to Yale too. I didn't realize that, oh, that you yeah. were doing it. Well, well I do because I fix things first. Yeah. I fix them before I print. Yeah. I get the type in better condition, and I make sure formatting is okay. or generally in good shape. But I do things to make them print okay. out better. All right. And so, so, so I always send it to Yale. Okay. Yeah. She's never mentioned that she's I have a question. The book of Josh, I was looking at MacArthur's footnotes, and he talks about it in in Second Samuel 118, but he says, and in Joshua 119 to 27, there's no Joshua 119 to 27. Because it ends at 18, 118. So what is that all? Because it ends at 18, Joshua 1. Oh, does it? Yeah. Verse 18? Yeah, here if you go back here to Joshua 1, so it ends at 18. So. Mm. Oh, no, I'm just questioning. Oh, I, I think it's 1 or do you think it's 10? It could be 10. 10. Maybe 18. Could be 10, 19. Because it's it's referring to this section 10. So I bet it's 19. I bet it's So they missed it. Can I have your attention for a minute? Um, I, I also wanted to mention that in connection with Joshua's long day, that seeking these explanations of, of how the mechanism might have worked that a miracle like this could have happened, uh, 
it in no way detracts from the miracle because in order for this to happen, God had to create the universe, create the solar system, and set the heavenly bodies in motion so that they would be just at the right place at the right time to, to bring about the desired result. So it's, it's a miracle no matter how you look at it.